Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. We've been on hiatus for a couple of months. We're very happy to be back. And in the interest of breezy summer viewing, we're kicking things off with a look at the film's life and times of one Stanley Kubrick. I know, nice leisure viewing I've got you roped in here for. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I am the host of this fine podcast program as well as the film editor at Consequence of Sound. Hi, I'm uh, Michael Snydell. I I was previously on for an episode, and I am a co-host of the Film Stage Show and a freelancer at various outlets. And uh, I'm Blake Obel, a senior something here at uh, COS. Last I saw it might have been a writer, contributor, or something. But anyways, I'm a big fan of the Kubi, and I'm really happy to be here. Apologies in advance for nicknaming him the Kubi. Send all your complaints to me, not Dominic or Michael. So Blake has assumed the full burden of referring to the filmmaker we're spending the next month discussing as the Kubi. I promise after this episode, you will probably never hear us do it again. In any case... Indeed, we are talking Kubrick. It sounds like a slur. It does. It kind of does a little bit. I mean, think of it this way. If Albert Broccoli could be called Cubby for like decades and decades, why can't we call Kubrick the Kubi? You know, and like kind of of warm him up a little bit, considering he's so austere by reputation. But uh, I feel like you're offending large swaths of people. Okay. (laughs) Without even realizing that you are. Okay. But hey, hey, let's not turn this into a whole like anti-PC thing, man. I just want to call him the Kubi. No. Uh, but seriously, I, just, I, I don't know, it comes from a weird place of affection for, for, for me, for the guy. Anyways, enough of that. So before we get underway, I just want to remind you all listening at home. First of all, thank you for listening. There are so many podcasts on the Internet that you could be listening to at this very moment. We're very glad that you chose ours. You can find us on Facebook at Filmography, a filmmaker's podcast. You can find me on Twitter at D. Suzanne Mayer, and that's kind of the default account for Filmography at the moment. And you can also leave us a rating on both iTunes and Podchaser, and we encourage you to go in and do that. The ratings are more helpful than you could possibly realize, especially if you know anything about the economics of how podcasts work. So we thank you all for tuning in, and we're going to talk some Stanley Kubrick. And where exactly you can find your way into the body of work of someone like Kubrick is overwhelming to say the least, because for starters, this was a filmmaker whose work spanned the entire back half of the 20th century. This is a filmmaker who's made multiple movies that have come to define the cinematic lexicon, whether in visual language, in terms of dramatic storytelling, in terms of pushing against the boundaries of what you could put on a movie screen, which was something he did right up until his passing in 1999. This week, we're going to be talking about human deceit as seen through Kubrick's earliest works. 
Today we will be discussing his three 1950s outings, which would be 1953's Fear and Desire, 1955's Killer's Kiss, and 1956's The Killing. And not only is this some sunny material, as you no doubt <laughs> sussed out from the titles alone, but two it's... Two kills, two kills. <laughs> if only we could get three. But it's also very interesting to seeing Kubrick working in a mode that is very much tied to film noir. And Killer's Kiss and The Killing are both outright noir. Fear and Desire is a bit odder to pin down, and we'll come back to that in a moment when we start talking about the films in particular. But where I wanted to open up the dialogue for this week's episode and for the series at large, is to talk about the Kubrick of the early years. And in order to do that, I want to talk about the world in which these films came to be. Now, for one, in the 1950s, you have a massive cultural sea change in the United States. These are the Eisenhower years. These are the baby boomer years. But by that same time, you have the social rigors of 50s American traditionalism. These are the cultural battlegrounds we're still using it as an example on to this day. You had the man in the gray flannel suit winning the bread for the family. You had the studious stay-at-home mom. You had the kids who were perfectly obedient ward cleavers both. And in every single scenario, you had an America that was simultaneously never more buttoned up, never more traditional, never more lay on your back and think of England Catholic. And in the same breath, you had a lot of the subversions emerging in society that you would see constitute the 1960s and what became so much of the cultural descent there. You had the Korean War happening. You had the immediate and direct fallout of World War II that the world was still working with. And in the midst of it, you have this young filmmaker with a, a family who seemingly had a boundless fount of money because if you read about it, several of Kubrick's early features were actually underwritten by personal loans from family members and the like, especially when he was still trying to sell studios on his style. And you had a filmmaker who was also breaking into the industry at a really fraught time for the industry, because if we're talking 1950s filmmaking, then we are in the salad days of McCarthyism as well in talking about all of this. So I guess I'll open up the floor to you guys with all of that as preamble. What do you see in Kubrick's early work that would inform the Stanley Kubrick that we would come to know in the years following? You know, I think that these three films, as different as they are, they do show a, a director who immediately shows a uh, intuition and talent for where to put the camera, uh, if nothing else. You motherfucker, I was going to say mise-en-scene, but that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the more appropriate way to say it, yeah. Dude was a gifted eye, because what, what, what were his publications, his, like being uh, the magazines that he would contribute with his photography... Yeah, that'd be Look Magazine, where um, Kubrick cut his teeth early, and he also worked on things like military films. He did a number of short-form pieces throughout the 1940s that sort of let him get his feet wet in the medium. So, I mean, and bear in mind, I'm like kind of working 50-50 with the details. What what era was his, uh, the boxing short film, Day of the Fight? There was, a, is that 40s or 50s? Just refresh me. And there's also, like, the Seafarers, the early 50s documentary about, like, you know, seashore workers that... 
basically so like, we're talking early 1950s for early all of 50s. these these are yeah. these are these are the short form features that are leading up to fear and desire as a debut of a sort and apologies and to all like precision nuts listening to a Kubrick podcast <laughs> like I, we don't want to let you down we've done the work it's just also like wait was it 52 or 53 for the seafarers right but uh no like to Snidey's that would point, be 1953. Yes, 53. Thank you. No, to 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 Snidey's point, like Kubi, Snidey Kubi, you get it now. Uh, I do not approve of this. <laughs> you approve? You love it? No. Um, basically, like he was an esthete. He was an absolute silky smooth esthete who, through aesthetics, and apologies if this is like art education, kind of vomiting out of my mouth. It's like aesthetics are ideology. And his aesthetics are basically, like, I'm fascinated with people, I'm fascinated with humanity, I'm fascinated with the systems in which people work within. And, like, there's, you know, not to be quasi-analytical, whatever, but it's like, you look at the people, you look at the rigid framework in which these people are kind of uh, presented and shot and lit within... Cooper kind of demonstrated a fascination with, like, human folly, hence why every chapter of this filmography podcast is going to be human. Uh, There's a human folly, there's human misery, there's human deceit, as this episode is kind of going by for the books. But, like, he was interested in people, which is ironic because he's gotten that reputation of being cold and, like, disliking people. If anything, I think he was immediately fascinated with, like, how people get by uh, within that look of, like, what are people doing? Well, and I think especially that notion of getting by is going to be really essential to all the films we're talking about today because it's very much the recurrent motif is people trying to improve their station in one way or another, which in his strange way you see in a lot of Kubrick's work, whether it's the social climbing of the early scenes in 2001 where it's people trying to be debutantes in space or pretty much the entirety of Barry Lyndon, for instance. But even just focusing on these early features, you very much see that desperate need to find your place in the world as an emergent theme. I, I do think the one thing, I, I, again, but before we spend, you know, hours talking about Kubrick as a microbiologist, I, I think there <laughs> is something to be said about how much he's a provocateur, even from these very early films. Yes. And and how much you can tell with the editing and sequences, which I'm, I'm being vague right now just so we can go, you know, more in-depth when we get to each individual film. But you're seeing someone who is, you know, is finding a pleasure in voyeurism in the same way as, you know, someone like... Hitchcock, the, the, you know, absolute voyeur of cinema history. Oh, absolutely. And I think what's really interesting is getting back to the topic of deceit, which granted is of my slash the show's own creation, but I also think it's relevant here because it's this very particular kind of voyeurism, which is looking in on people as they do the worst things that people can do to one another. It's not just the perversion of looking necessarily. It's the larger social perversion of wanting to look in at the rats on the maze, the microbiologist point. But yet there's also this genuine earned humanity that he gives to a lot of these characters. And you'll see that throughout his career where there's an earned humanity to people that he's looking at in a fishbowl. And that's always been a very unique thing. And it's why when people all refer 
refer to Kubrick's work as icy or detached, it always feels like a little bit of a misnomer, you know, because if you wouldn't go as far as calling it detached, like I would say Lars von Trier is detached. Kubrick is not detached in that same way. He just views from a distance. And I think there's a crucial difference there. Gaspar Noe is literally detached in a fever dream of LSD. Kubrick is like fascinated with people, albeit probably very rudely or provocatively, but he is fascinated. With, yeah. He's like, why are you behaving the way you behave? Oh, <laughs> but well, uh, now I'll save the killing question from an Ebert review later. But like, it w- there, there was a great question in his great movies review. Like, remove the Kubrick name from his early films and his later films, from Barry Lyndon to The Killing. Could you tell the difference, or could you realize that it was the same director? I'm like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The dude is fascinated <laughs> with people. But well, sorry. And there is an ideology and a worldview that pervades. Yeah. And I think one other thing that's really crucial to mention here, and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in the chronology, yeah, yeah. admittedly, but Kubrick, after these films, this was the point, particularly where he's getting into the war films, which we'll touch on in a later episode, mm-hmm. he, he was going to leave the United States pretty soon after this. And one of his reasons was his concerns about where the U.S. was heading in terms of law and order and the rising crime in urban spaces in the United States in the 50s and 60s. And that's been a part of film as long as film has existed. For better and worse, there would be no Frank Miller without Urban Fear. And there would be no I'm the goddamn Batman without Frank Miller. <laughs> so, you know, everything trickles downhill. Which, uh, but, can I just, can I quick, just for the sake of topicality, do you yes. know that Kubrick loved Roseanne? Fascinating. No, okay. I did not. I found, like, it was Vanity Fair or it was Time or something from, like, mid-early 90s where he's like, yeah, yeah, when he was living in the UK and he was having tapes of TV shows sent to him, he was like, man, oh man, I love that Roseanne and that Simpsons. He didn't sound quite that casual because he's... A, Apparently, a shy he didn't dude. sound like a Richard Linklater character. <laughs> yeah, uh, but like, no, I, I, sorry, I just had to throw that in. Given the Roseanne cancellation less than twenty four hours ago, it's like funny. Kubrick was into Roseanne as a quote slice of life sort of thing. So anyway, well, and you know, if it worked better for him than it has for the rest of the world, then God right. bless. <laughs> but to make to make something kind of like literate out of or not literate, but <laughs> sorry. Like, to bring that a little bit back, I do want to use that a little bit to say that, you know, the difference between, you know, you can compare Kubrick and Roseanne. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm doing this. Sure, let's do this. Go, go, go. Is that uh, in the same way that like slice of life comedy, uh, it, you know, social realism and the realities of what someone's going through is something that is on the margins. It's not something that becomes mm-hmm. the focal point. And, and I would say similarly about uh, Kubrick that, you know, when you're talking about these people that are in various states, whether it's, um, you know, rags to riches in the, in the case of Barry Lyndon or at, at the edge of sanity in, in the case of <laughs> at least one or two of our films <laughs> today and in many other films in this series, uh, those are all films that are more experiential than internal um I, I, and i think that that does you know sp- separate him even from people from from the time like someone like you know capra who is also obviously interested in people but is also very interested in you know 
emotion in its most uh, capital states. <laughs> so let me, would you argue, like, the look to the Look Magazine thing, like, would you say that photojournalistic sensibility, like, the, the observer, the long gaze, that eye kind of informs some of this? Because, like, I, I think of, like, photographers like Gary Winogrand, who's, like, one of my personal favorites, who is a dude who would just walk around with a cannon in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whip it over the back of his shoulder and just kind of close his eyes and take the photo. And then, like, he would take something like 500 photos, clearly an iPhone pioneer, uh, and he would go develop them, and eventually he would find something where he's like, this, this is life right here. And, I, I don't know, it's like that kind of nervous attachment that Eleanor Rigby, whatever it is, of looking at people. But, like, Kubrick kind of, I don't know, he worked really hard at, like, yeah, being fascinated with people, but with, like, an ability to kind of melt away bullshit i guess <laughs> well uh, and that's yeah. and that's interesting because i would agree despite the fact that he was making these films while operating in an era yeah. that was specifically built to engender on-screen bullshit because <laughs> if we're going to talk about early kubrick or really any kind of pulpy 50 cinema in mm-hmm. the vein of the films we're talking about today we have to talk a little bit about the Hayes Production Code, at least briefly. Because the Hayes Code, so by the 50s, the Hayes Code was waning in popularity, certainly. Because we were on the verge of the cinematic revolution of the 60s, which sort of threw grenades into the idea of what we could put on a movie screen. But for years and years, there was the Hayes Production Code. Yeah. And for the uninitiated, the Hayes Code was a series of ethical guidelines approved by the U.S. government, essentially meant to keep perversion and indecency out of movies because All the way back in like 1930 like after like as a response to things like scarface is yes that about right? it was basically there were there were hand-wringing concerns about moral indecency because in the early days of film not just scarface but you had films like todd browning's freaks you had the universal monsters and there were and there were all these um there were all these movies that were purposely essentially the earliest, earliest proto-grindhouse movies that exist purely to titillate, to shock, to horrify, and to send you home in 60 minutes or less. We should all be lucky for all films to be this efficient nowadays. But be that as it may, like, honestly, if a Saw movie was only 55 minutes long, wouldn't you like it a hell of a lot more? Uh, no. Well, but, it's still uh, a Saw movie. <laughs> well, well, that is maybe. But it was a softball. <laughs> it, it was, and it, and in the case in the case of the Hayes Code, though, what emerged was a streak where you would have filmmakers trying to subvert the Hayes Code because now you made yeah. certain imagery forbidden, and as anyone knows, when it comes to human bidding, beings, the f- way to make something exorbitantly fun is to forbid it. You turn it into a fetish object, sometimes literally. And in the case of the Hayes Code, what really gets unsettling is when you read through some of this, I'm just going to read you the general principles and we can kind of extrapolate from there how quickly this went wrong and why. And you can kind of just get a gist from it from reading these. Uh, This podcast is adult rated as of right now. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be very adult rated. Bare elbows, high heels, you name it. Jazz dancing. (laughs) Uh, that just makes that you just better make sure you have one foot on the floor if you have two people in bed. Yeah, that just <laughs> that all just thinks makes me think of Guy Madden's My Winnipeg and just a flashing title card that says "Man Pageants" with an exclamation point. But that was basically funny enough. That was basically the terror. Like the things that were culturally terrifying during this era almost seem quaint and goofy now. 
But the general principles were, one, no pictures shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. Correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment, shall be presented, and law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. So right there, you are setting up the basis of all Catholic guilt in modern America, because... You can show pretty much anything, and that's the thing that gets slept on with the Hayes Code. You didn't really have to stop depicting anything. You just had to have a hand-wringing moral message somewhere in there about how all these things were bad and wrong. (laughs) So you could have, like, um, and Snydell and I were discussing this before we started taping. You go back to the classic documentary, The Celluloid Closet, and this is touched on at length because you could have queer-coded characters as long as they were punished at the end of the film. You could have... You mean like every Claude Rains movie ever? Exactly. You could have grisly acts of violence on screen, and which we see in these films and we'll get to talking about a little bit later, and you could get away with those things as long as they were depicted in a certain way that met the menial standards of taste. The irony, of course, is that like the legacy of the Hayes lives on today in the MPAA's extremely arbitrary rating system in a manner. In the case of the Hayes Code... You had a lot of restrictions that specifically outlawed very particular things. Because you could have a violent war movie Mm -hmm. as long as the right people won. You could have sexuality depicted as long as it wasn't indecent. That's why there was always such furious kissing back in this era of filmmaking, because that was the most you could get away with, and everything you wanted to suggest had to be suggested in a kiss. Hence, some of the most genuinely erotic movie sequences ever framed being made in the 1930s and 40s. But in the case of the Kubrick films in particular, what I'm most interested in is the depiction of murder, Because sex will factor in in a couple more episodes when we start talking about the movies where Kubrick was directing in the 60s and 70s and didn't have to hold anything back anymore. But these are exercises in restraint by contrast. And what's fascinating is some of the things that were barred, at least by the hardline Hayes Code, were things like brutal killings presented in detail, revenge in modern times, which great post-rock band name, (laughs) Um, theft, robbery, safe-cracking, and the dynamiting of trains, mines, and buildings should not be detailed in method. Arson must be subject to the same safeguards. Methods of smuggling should not be presented. So Kubrick was making crime genre movies in an era that made it remarkably difficult to make a crime and genre movie that also yielded several of the canonical best ones ever made. But as I understand it, wasn't it also fair to say that if you were a B-movie, you were less under the... Oh, absolutely. It was easier to sneak something in front of people than it was to get away with... um, Like, if you were an RKO or a Universal, you were under a level of scrutiny that 23-year-old Stanley Kubrick working on Fear and Desire probably wasn't. Sure. (laughs) And I I don't know if I pulled this with you recently, but, like, I think it was a 1980s interview with Kubrick where he described the code as the suspenders holding the pants on when they should be falling off in any given moment. So, like, which isn't a great quote from him that I've probably butchered, but he, like... Yeah, it it sounded like he totally resented the notions of the code and being able to work with adult subject matter because 
It's not fucking, you know, RKO Disney movies every day. He clearly was someone who wanted to deal with the reality of people yeah. and the real, like, comeuppances, reciprocity, and, like, uh, dangers of how people interact with one each other. I, I, I want to save this detail for The Killing when we kind of get to it. The Killing was originally supposed to be based on a different book, but he wasn't able to get the rights because it didn't fit the code, and we can kind of elaborate on that later, yeah. Absolutely, and it's just mainly... To both of you and to all of you listening at home, of course, I want you to kind of keep a lot of these strictures in the back of your head because with the films we're discussing, it poses an interesting conundrum. How do you authentically capture the full spectrum of human deceit in an era that was specifically encouraging filmmakers to downplay those things? And I feel like that's as good a way as any into the first of our films, which is Kubrick's debut feature from 1953, Fear and Desire. All right. Let's not forget where we are. Even though we're lost in the woods, let's try to remain civilized. Well, we can't stay here. Can we leave a fish here? Something funny. It was Kubrick's first attempt at a war film. It would certainly not be his last. We'll get to that much more extensively in the next episode of this show. But for this week, Fear and Desire is a simple story of a foursome of military men stranded behind enemy lines who slowly give themselves over to their own perversions and the overwhelming fog of war. So it's pro-war? I do not believe that it is a (laughs) pro-war movie. We are we are still decades away from 13 hours, Blake. You're still safe here. Oh, thank God. So, in the case of Fear and Desire, though, you have Kubrick working with a skeleton crew. There were only 15 total cast members, five of which were the primary on-screen cast, and that's cast and crew in some total. This was a bare-bones production, largely self-financed by Kubrick and with loans from people close to him. I was going to say, did I see correctly 13000 on IMDb? I believe, yes. Which I, I just have to comment on. Like, even with inflation, it's just like, give me a year. We could put this together. We could put together a really good minimalist <laughs> war film, you know, just for a couple of bucks. Uh, yeah, that's well, insane to me. And what's interesting is, especially when you've got it coming out in this post-World War II era, when most of the films engaging with the war were still very straightforward hero yeah. stories... This is a film that definitely complicates notions of the war movie a lot more. It's very much a character piece. It's more about the emotional sensations of losing yourself to the battlefield than it is with any particular war encounter. And there are no great battles. There's nothing in that realm. The film is barely an hour long. And yet you do get this full emotional spectrum of what it's like to go into a war zone and return irreparably changed. And what's kind of cool about it is, like, he plays in abstract, like, broad strokes. He um, he avoids any kind of, like, political or national connotation. It's basically just men of war in war in any given location. Could be any place around the world, theoretically, with a forest. And basically, he's like, I- I'm not interested in the politics or the details. I'm interested in kind of the broad humanistic strokes of how these men are reacting to the situation which were dropped in which look uh, from a first film standpoint is like a super pretentious but b really kind of cool that he's like willing to force himself to work in those kinds of strokes 
Yeah, I think I think what's really fascinating about about those strokes though is that like, you know, even compared to like Kubrick's later work, like something mm-hmm. like Pass of Glory, this is a more uh emotionally straightforward um war movie. I, but like as uh Dom and Blake you guys have both said is that like this is again Kubrick seeming like he's, you know, coloring in the lines and then kind of outlining outside and revealing, I hesitate to say avant-garde tendencies because I think the next film we're going to talk about is potentially more avant-garde, but I think that there are at least two or three sequences in this film that, that go to some places you don't expect for as like straight laced as the story begins. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's a very, it's a film of a very familiar hue, especially in the era it came out. The idea of guys trudging through a battlefield, shooting the shit was fertile cinematic territory, especially in the 1950s. And yet you get these sequences like the really haunting one near the end in particular, where Paul Mazursky and his now deceased partner are returning from the fog in a boat and Mazursky is singing and babbling like a lunatic next to a corpse. Yeah. And it's this singularly unnerving, frightening image that invokes imagery of films like Apocalypse Now or Agira, the Wrath of God. Other stories about the folly of man getting lost in the wilderness and losing himself in the process. And you get it in the middle of this otherwise pretty straightforward story. And even there, I think you really get to see the beginning of the Kubrick method of dealing with people where people are walking symbols and then whatever defines their personhood comes secondary to that because Paul Mazursky is very much playing as Sidney. He is a symbol. He is a symbol of the man, the innocent who loses himself to wartime. And we can get into the ethics of that in a second because that's a scene we need to expand on a little bit. But in the case of something like that, you have a film in an era where heroes were still very much heroes, that was still a much less demarcated line, um, daring deposit that maybe men stuck behind enemy lines would give themselves over to their most savage impulses. And it feels weirdly radical. Like now there are more war movies about that concept than straight up war movies. But at that time it was still kind of radical to make that kind of a statement. This was still a time when even like, I, I might be off of my time period, so please, uh, you know, throw stones if I'm off. Um, I, wasn't John Wayne doing constantly like jingoistic style? Oh, absolutely. Searchers is three years away, and let's let's think about like the big war movies prior. 1946, Best Years of Our Lives, which is the closest oh, to being right. like a popular subversive though. It, it's subversive, but it's also it's very PTSD driven, and, and if. If I recall correctly, like it's about everybody after the war and the closest to like trench warfare. I'm thinking all quiet in the Western front mm. and there, there's kind of like a gorgeous majesty to it. Not to sound Trumpian here, um, but like <laughs> of the, the war movies. Yeah, there is like some tragedy and triumph to it, but there's nothing quite there's nothing that comes quickly to mind. That's quite on this like quick, immediate, visceral, humanistic level of like they're there. And it's messing with them. It's affecting them, and it's, it's warping a them. Sweaty movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's actually a great word for it. Yeah. Well, and I think what's really interesting is Kubrick does not 
well, did not much care for fear and desire in the years that would follow. And I mean, no one is nuts about their student films, granted. I mean, I appeared as a performer in a student film or two that I wish would never see the light of day again. But... Oh, no one will judge you for co-directing Godzilla 98. Don't don't worry about it. (laughs) Roland and I were trying something, Blake. So... What's really interesting, though, is that not only did the film's original distributor die in the 1950s, actually, right by my measure, the year this film was released, Joseph Burstyn passed away on a transatlantic flight. And in the years since, it's widely believed, though I believe whether it was confirmed has been speculative at best, that Kubrick tried to have copies of the film destroyed because he didn't want something that, by his standards, he felt was so amateur making the rounds. And even now, you can watch it. I mean, you can go and watch it on YouTube because the um, the fair use laws have expired on it. There are proper Blu-ray releases if you're curious about it as it's well. On Amazon Prime as well. I just want to yes. point out I did bring in the Library of Congress Blu-ray just to be like, ha ha, Kubrick, you lose. <laughs> We got it on Blu-ray. Yeah, there is the Library of Congress uh, uh, logo before the the Prime version as well. So that must be the same. Well, and honestly, that's laying around and there is a print at the um, Kodak Labs that I read. You have to go in and access not as a group but as a solo individual and the print cannot leave the building. So we've done – and even Kubrick actually – put out a statement through Warner Brothers when they started re-releasing a lot of his material that basically referred to it as, quote, a bumbling amateur film exercise. Uh, yeah, And that's the thing. Kubrick made, even in the midst of making something that he is embarrassed by, yeah. you can still see these flourishes of what would become the yeah. defining traits of his style emerging even in this film. I, I love the traces of almost like absurd insanity that that this this shows early on, and like you know what I I, I want to lead into because I want to talk about that scene with Paul Mazursky because I uh, so to set the stage just so listeners know what scene I'm talking about. There is a long sequence that takes up almost the entire middle segment of the film, uh, where Paul Mazursky's character Sydney uh, is with. The the woman they come onto who is tied to a tree with uh, another soldier's belt, and he goes through the motions of losing his mind in about two minutes, and it's kind of dumb. But Paul Mazursky is like makes it a physical comedy performance. Like, it's almost like a Jerry Lewis performance. <laughs> like there's something but so I, I have to fight you so hard on this. But I played- love that scene so much because it's like, fuck it, if you go, you go all out, right? Like, who cares if it's Lewis? Like, he's losing his mind full boogie on that scene. And like when he's pretending to eat food and like the music is kind of doing this like playful music to like accompany him just to be like, no, really, he's crazy. Um, I'm such a sucker for hammy acting like that. <laughs> the Mazursky, the guy who made what Harry and Tonto and Down and Out in Beverly Hills got his start in a Kubrick film going ape shit. It's like, you know what? Good for you. Good for you, because I actually listened to this uh, NYU interview with him or something like that where he's like, I was just a student and I was just making a couple of bucks. I didn't know it would be this weird. 
Like, but it's not even like edited. It's like it's no, a not. single take. Yeah. It's weird, right? Yeah. No, like I'm not saying I dislike that. I'm just saying like that part in general, like from characterization, yes. like you know, like. It is something that Mazursky elevates. That that's what I. Oh, absolutely. And I think, and I think to your point, there is a lot of the emergent Kubrick in that moment more than arguably any other in the movie, except for that scene, the aforementioned scene with the raft and the fog at the end. Because in that scene, you get to watch someone lose their mind on screen, which would become one of his most famous directorial flourishes. You get to watch. An imperiled woman with no name. She is literally credited as the woman on IMDb and in the film's credits. Um, to be fair, don't most comic book movies and action movies do that today? Too? I mean, honestly, yeah. <laughs> but there's just like 200 cast members and 30 of them are the woman. That's really the exchange rate there. But I, at the same time, I very, I very, very much feel like in the case of um, in that scene in particular you get the Im- one of the most Kubrickian images, arguably, which is, once again, a beautiful, imperiled, in this case, bound woman viewed from a detached distance. Because, once again, Kubrick's camera, because he shot the film, and we'll talk about that more in the back half, but Kubrick's camera adopts Mazursky's vantage. And this would be recurrent throughout his career. I mean, you see it most blatantly in The Shining, but really in all of his work, taking the perspective of deeply, deeply troubled men and asking the viewer to then adopt that perspective and how they engage with the film, which is where a lot of the misgivings with Kubrick's work comes in, which we'll address in the weeks to come. But it's also really the first time you see that. And even in something that was an hour long and that he wanted to disown, you can immediately see that streak emerge as a subject of serious interest for him. I was going to say deeply troubled men would be a great name for this Kubrick podcast. But uh, <laughs> no, you're absolutely kind of hitting the nail on the head, like amateurish or unpolished as it is. Like he has insight and perspective in this movie and he's saying something, albeit with kind of a loose or uncertain hand. Uh, and it's an interesting perspective. I think I kind of like to, uh, especially in the case of, it's the first two films we're talking about, Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss. As far as I understand, uh, those are the only films he photographed. Yes, and those were the only films he made outside of the studio okay. system as yeah. well. Nowadays, you'll see an MGM tag attached to Killer's yeah. Kiss that was not the fact at the time of its release. So these were sort of his first projects, again, largely self-financed, and you get to see him try a couple things that would eventually become hallmarks. And it's one of the only cases where someone working within the studio system seemed to really open up what he was capable of as a director instead of what he usually is the other way around. And that feels as good a way as any to jump then into Killer's Kiss. I love you. Love me. That's funny. Why is it so funny? Why? It's a mistake to confuse pity with love. Another hour-long feature, his other self-distributed feature, we're jumping into 1955 now, and already you are seeing a more assured Kubrick. It is the story of a doomed boxer who runs afoul of a bookie while falling in love with the bookie's mistress, and the boxer and the mistress want to run off together. It is pure 1950s pulp stuff. It is well within the tradition of the boxing film, which, lest we forget, is one of Hollywood's oldest traditions of them all. The best. And it's also... 
an incredibly interesting riff on both the noir and the boxing film because there are a handful of images in this. Whereas Fear and Desire has some interesting visual choices, Killer's Kiss is a handful of genuinely arresting ones. Well, it's funny you mentioned the visual because I was, when you were talking about Kubrick quietly being like, no, we won't be restoring Fear and Desire. I wonder if that had, and this is like my wannabe photographer brain thinking, do you think he was just pissed off that he was photographing a movie in the forest where like his high contrast, clean framework was hard to work with because you can't control nature. Whereas Killer's Kiss, working within noir, you get these high contrast, beautiful mise-en-scene images of like, really cool darks to lights and like vertiginous angles and cool alleys and really well framed things happening. Like all of a sudden he was in control. He got to be straight up visual. And maybe that again, back to the whole, like as a photographer, like what interests him fucking trees and leaves and the forest is hard to kind of put a story together. But when you do a noir, that's the coolest looking genre ever. You get all the good stuff. Yeah. He, he indulges in just some like wonderful, like almost like postmodern B-roll. Yes. Like, like I think of one time where he ends up at a storefront and, and he just does this series of clean inserts of just random things around the storefront. And then he ends up on this strange picture of a toy yes. uh, swimming in, yes. in this like barrel. <laughs> and it's it, it's one of these things where I'm like, uh, where like Killer's Kiss, as Dom was kind of already saying, is it's just like... This is just kind of an incredibly, to put it simply, I think this is like, I like this one the most of our three today because really? it's not the best movie, but I think it's the most interesting. It's the most weird. There's a lot of, of things he does from the ways he plays with the femme fatale, who is very passive until the end where she gets a bizarre, uh, bizarre scene where and I'm thinking specifically of the scene right at the end where he, where um, Jamie Smith, the the lead, which is, this is his only film. I thought he was, I kind of thought he was great. And Wait, this, really? Yeah, this is his only film as far crazy. as I checked. And he, it's weird that you mentioned Frank Miller earlier, because Jamie <laughs> Smith looks like a Frank Miller hero, if ever I've seen one. Oh, absolutely, he does. <laughs> Chain smoking, muscular in that very yeah. gaunt, oh, yeah. taut sort of way. Yeah. And that's I, I, and then like you know Frank Silvera looks like you know it is an Ernest Borgnine type like he has that like <laughs> he has that yeah kind of, um I, well, he looks especially more like Ernest Borgnine in uh, Fear and Desire but but again the I'm getting away from my point the the scene I'm talking about where he's playing with the femme fatale is there's a scene near the end where Jamie Smith's character is on the ground. And um, it's where the goons have him on the ground, have, you know, guns pointed at him. And it seems like it's the end. And his his lover, Gloria, um, played by... Um, sorry. Irene Kane. Thank you so much. I, played by Irene Kane, starts telling this, her, her boss, who's just this massive creep who just uh, wants to possess her. Um, that, you know what, what we can have a family and everything will be fine. And it's this bizarre scene where you're, you're seeing that Jamie Smith is awake and hearing this conversation. And it's honestly so much more interesting to me than so many femme fatale characters where, you know, they're just upfront about their, you know, like snide sniping Mm -hmm. at, at, 
you know, the hero or something. Like, this is something so much more devastating and a gut punch. And I think this film is kind of filled with those moments, which is maybe part of why the ending, which was actually... I'm going all over the place, which is why the ending, which was apparently studio-mandated... Go, man, go. um, Yes. Is, like... So disappointing. <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> so to get out ahead of it, for those of you listening at home, if you watched Killer's Kiss and you went, hey, the last 30 seconds of the movie do not fit the tone of the rest of the movie whatsoever, that's because United Artists insisted over Kubrick's protests that the ending be a little bit sunnier, despite the fact this is a violent film noir about a boxer who steals a mob boss's lover. Which, can I interject? What is it with studios and thinking, if we just change the ending, (laughs) if we just change the ending, it'll fix everything. Mm -hmm. It's like that dumb crit when people walk out of a movie like, I wasn't paying attention, but I didn't like the ending. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, that drives me crazy every fucking time because they always try to change the ending. Oh, absolutely, Uh, and it's not as though the ending would completely destroy everything that's come before unless we're talking about the Nicolas Cage film knowing, but that's neither here nor there. I like the ending. Leave it alone. Come back for filmography's September series, Nicolas Cage's knowing. (laughs) But (laughs) We're vampires now. The Hays Code does, you know, there's plenty of things you could talk about in relation to, especially noir movies, whose ending is just like, hmm, I was not expecting that. Mm-hmm. Right, like, that hey, so congratulations for, the, you know, encouraging the power of suggestion and, like, playing along the margin slash, what the fuck were you implying or trying yeah. to instill with that? Well, and in the case of Killer's Kiss, it's even more off-key a note yeah. because you have a film that maintains a remarkably consistent sense of place and tone throughout, which is one of the ways that I think Kubrick really develops huge in this feature just for in the two years it took him to go from fear and desire to this because not only do you have all this gorgeous street photography of old New York City which is one of my favorite things about watching it but you also have in addition to that sense of place you have a lot of really confident images which again we're talking cinematography in the back half of the show but there is some arresting stuff on hand here that also really gives you a feel going back to the human element of it all for character because this is pretty on its face this is pretty straightforward con game stuff you know boxer's supposed to take a fall blows his cue i mean this is the basis of one of the pulp fiction stories right we're not that far off the mark here and down to the mall who just wants a better and simpler life um she's not playing the angles in this one we'll see that sort of femme fatale a lot more in the killing when we get to that um, Irene Kane here is a much more sincere kind of character by contrast, which makes the lurid nature of the film's final third all the more off-putting because this is pretty straightforward noir stuff until it absolutely turns into a Stanley Kubrick movie. No, th- w- w- would you guys argue, agree, disagree? Like this is this is a better movie to consider his first film, meaning it has adventurous style, thematic intrigue, a willingness to experiment with form more than like fear and desire, which is kind of like a a junior high scribble about like war is ugly, man. Uh, Like fear and desire, or sorry, killer's kiss has like the courage to be cool and intriguing and interesting and unique and special. Oh, absolutely. And I think like in the case of fear and desire, you have things like that Eisensteinian editing, which he would eventually, if, if he wouldn't reintegrate that, there are certainly echoes of that. And a lot of how he composes his later more ornate films, 
But even in Killer's Kiss, you see the jump in the narration from yeah. this kind of hoary war is hell stuff to this much tighter, much more character-driven kind of narration. I was actually often thinking while watching Killer's Kiss of a lot of the director dresses in A Clockwork Orange, Mm -hmm. which function in much the same way to put you inside the head of the character, like all good narration is ostensibly supposed to do, but a lot of the time doesn't actually accomplish. Well, it's funny you mentioned the QT thing as well, not to run parallels, uh, but it's like Reservoir Dogs, I've always heard 50-50 compliments. Like, yes, there's a fan base, but there are other people were like, well, he's just kind of working the the heist thriller emotions to kind of get practice at the form, and then he goes in the Pulp Fiction, and then he's able to subvert, reinvigorate, reinvent. I, I feel like there's no. you I, see a similar Tarantino's going to listen. There's be like, yeah, I am like Kubrick, uh, but um, <laughs> but like no, Killer's Kiss is when he actually plays like the invention game, as it were. Absolutely. That's where he's trying to put you places that yeah. film hasn't put you before, yeah. which would become one of the defining traits of his body of work. And I think even there is him shooting it also brings an, an immediacy that yeah. I'm not saying you don't get later, but there is a messier. Uh, there's a messiness, the immediacy that I wasn't expecting. I, I, I think I was pre you know condition to expect these cleaner neater uh like i just wasn't expecting for instance to feel a little bit of vertigo during the boxing scene for instance oh absolutely or there's um well and you even compare to there are shots in fear and desire where kubrick admitted to using a stroller in lieu of a dolly (laughs) to get some of those shots and there are scenes in killer's kiss that almost verge on kind of like the stylistic verve of handheld photography 50 years before that really became the fashion of the industry oh i saw the 2001 unrestored print last night and there's still moments like wait a minute why the hell are you going handheld up dave's butt right now and stuff like that because it's like diversity of the shots but it's like I, i'm not arguing with him, i'm just asking well and he was always at kubrick as we're gonna flesh out in the weeks to come was always a filmmaker with both feet firmly planted in how can any of the aesthetic flourishes supplement the story how can i center you in the emotion of the moment by showing you something and i think in killer's kiss you get a lot of those images because a lot of the mood and the texture of the film Mm -hmm. emerges just from him patiently looking at things whether it's jamie smith standing alone in the train station at in the bookend image of the film that it returns to as sort of this greek chorus moment or whether it's, again, the aforementioned boxing sequence, which is terrific and shot with a hell of a lot of style for the time. And yeah, you even yeah. you even get that one image of the referee looking down at him from his vantage with that half-filled frame, which is a Kubrick mainstay. Yes. I mean, the most famous image is in The Shining when it's Jack Nicholson trying to get into the freezer at the end. But he's been working that shot in some variant or another in almost every film he ever put out. And I feel like the first time you really see it is that little throwaway moment in Killer's Kiss. And that's, that's I feel like, the value of it more than anything. It functions almost as, to Blake's point, as a Rosetta Stone, even more than Fear and Desire for what we would come to see in the following years. I still think there... Yeah, no, I, I very much agree with that, but I, I think there is still a, like... There are scenes that are almost reminiscent of... I feel like this is accurate and inaccurate, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
that are almost reminiscent of something like Godard. Like when I think of, for instance, when the the glass goes at the mirror, or when it comes to the last sequences and how the rooftops lead to the the scene in kind of a, a mannequin shop. And the way that those are shot and the way that it becomes kind of blinkered and um, starts fragmenting itself feels more reminiscent of French New Wave to me than even Kubrick. But like as far as like the tonalities that it's reaching and the weird... Um, well, let's, let's like, think to like yeah. 1955 mainstays, sure. trends, whatever... Uh, well, I'm, throwing it out there best picture nearby was what like the greatest show on earth like that super boring heston movie you have technicolor films of the 50s versus like the low budget black and white productions and yeah to your point of like godardian new wavy kind of like a highly saturated pulpy vibe to it yeah it's just cool well and this is back when montage editing was still like kind of an oddity in american cinema and not like a stylistic standard yet so you also have that tension where you're looking at you're looking at a filmmaker who's invoking the new industry when the old industry is still in full flower i hate to throw this idea out there but like the idea kubrick was you know a chain smoking uh, art school senior being like you should see what they're doing in europe <laughs> versus like the other kind of stuff going on he could get away with that in that era i bet he'd be talking about la talante a lot oh god he'd <laughs> and be I insufferable <laughs> right now wouldn't he yeah he Which took a he took a more. lot of classes on drawing nudes, like more than he needed for graduation credit. I'll have you know I've done the nude drawing classes. Meh. Uh. <laughs> but so if we're talking about Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss as both these kind of inceptive features, as the movies you make when you're still feeling out your style, when you're finding your footing, movies that were mostly funded by pharmacists in various parts of the country, <laughs> which is true. You can look that up. It's one of my favorite things about those early films. It was a lot of like pro- a lot of the producer credits. Any Ambien or are we going to bring it back to Roseanne? <laughs> No, we've, we got we've it. Talk- we got it. <laughs> we have talked enough of that for one episode. But now, Room 237 dedicated 80 minutes of conspiracy theory. I think we have enough time to tie Roseanne <laughs> to Kubrick, okay? So Kubrick was all about Roseanne in that third Halloween episode. Gobel, Gobel you're showing up to hijack my show, and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> They're removing me, pokes. Uh, <laughs> so before Blake Gobel is removed hard and feathered from this session... <laughs> I just want to say Room 237 is a piece of dog shit. Well, it's nonsense. Oh, believe it's me. absolutely horseshit. In yeah. a couple All in right. a couple Good. weeks' time, we're going to get Woo. to The Shining, and then we're going to talk about what a terrible masturbatory fan exercise oh, that is. Don't but congratulations, frat. Reddit detectives. You got a movie, so <laughs> fuck. Shit. Uh, sorry. My mom's going to hate this podcast. Anyway. Uh, so, it's so nonsense. Before we get any further off topic, and before I upset Pam, <laughs> I want to just go on to our third film for this week's discussion, The Killing, Get it, Johnny. About these two other guys. You mean there's gonna be two other guys in on the deal? And we ain't gonna know who they are? That's right. You don't know who they are, and they don't know who you are. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, I guess so, but I... Makes sense to me, all right. How come we need them, though, Johnny? What are they gonna do? Oh, one of them's for the job with a rifle. None of you boys can handle that, even if you were willing to.
Which, if Killer's Kiss is the development of Kubrick as we know him now, then The Killing, which was his first major studio feature and his first major production, his first time working with movie stars of substantial reputation, all around kind of a canonical growth feature for Kubrick, Mm -hmm. you see so many of what would become his hallmarks really start to emerge and flourish here, from the existential cynicism to the role of duplicitous women, which again, we're going to get back to in a second here, to even the way in which he manages to make movie stars look like exhausted everyday people. Because I think especially that last point is key, because in his work with Sterling Hayden here, you get a version of Sterling Hayden who looks exhausted every time he appears on screen. He is nowhere near the cocksure star he was in so many other features. You get Kubrick working vulnerability and pathos out of a chiseled movie star, which if we're talking about signatures of his, that's another one very, very high on the list, getting name actors to play down for his kind of work. No, I'm excited as hell to talk about Hayden right now, just because it's like, when you're talking about him dragging down Hayden, like a classical square-jawed, like, studio 50s era, uh, Asphalt Jungle, was it, or Blackboard Jungle? Asphalt Jungle. Asphalt, and Blackboard is Glenn Ford, right? I believe so. Okay. Uh, Like, Sterling Hayden, the only time I've ever seen him kind of, like, scruffier looking was in Altman's Long Goodbye, where his beard hair was actually connecting to the back of his head somehow. And, like, he's, like, a drunk Hemingway ripoff. But, man, Kubrick really kind of just guided him along all the way. Because he, like, he looks really smooth, composed, confident, and yet... Completely not at all. Absolutely. Well, and in the case of The Killing, you're expanding the scope of Killer's Kiss in terms of the noir-style crime story into something a little bit broader. In this case, it's a traditional racetrack heist, at least on its face. But what it eventually tips its hand as being is much more of a character piece about a bunch of people who think they have the perfect plan, watching that plan fall apart because of the one reason that every great con falls apart, which is basic everyday human error. So now you have a movie that's sustained by the machinations of noir storytelling based on Lionel White's book Clean Break. This was also the first time, as mentioned, that Kubrick wasn't allowed to shoot his own feature. That would be Lucien Ballard responsible for this one because Kubrick was told by the studio he could not be both the writer and cinematographer under the guild structures of the time. Okay, that I didn't know. That That's crazy. He did, he did a lot of big uh, peck and paw, though, like a Wild Bunch and Getaway. So I, those are at least two pretty substantial Peckinpah films. That I also did. think he did Guardians of the Galaxy last summer. No, uh... <laughs> But in the case of The Killing, what you're also really getting is you're getting this emergent Kubrick who wants to, I mean, look at people like Lab Rats to loop back around to where we started. This is the first time where you really get the clinical Kubrick, where it's human stories told at a remove. Because for all the immediacy of the film, and I think this is a remarkably well-made con movie, all things considered, for all of the startling immediacy of the storytelling and the production and just the cadence of the movie and the way it operates, you still very, very much end up with a movie about a bunch of deeply flawed people who just want a better life. And in fact, I think there's something really interesting in the fact that so many 1940s and 50s films, I mean, sure, you had classics like the 
Grapes of Wrath and movies that spoke to the struggle of the time. But this was, again, this was the beginning of the boomer years Mm -hmm. where there was much more of a cultural optimism. There was much more of a sense if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you came home from the war and you did your service, you can have that piece of the American dream just like everybody else. And this is really the first of his really cynical takes on that because Kubrick has played with the American dream in other films, um, Clockwork Orange in one sense, Eyes Wide Shut in a much more blunt force sense. Barry Lyndon in the pointlessness of the American dream. Absolutely, that <laughs> as well. It took three hours for him to get status, and damn it. Uh, no, I... That's one of my favorite things about, like, heist movies. There is that inherent, like, everybody's just trying to do a job. Everybody's just trying to make some money. Well, and especially here, when you get looks at the backstories, it's people trying to give their patient spouses a better life. People trying to give their, provide for their loved ones. I mean, sure, you absolutely have characters like Sherry, who's Marie Windsor's character, who's just in it for herself, and she's in it to play all the angles. But even in the case of Johnny Clay, Sterling Hayden's protagonist, and it's hard to call him a protagonist because he disappears from the movie for pretty lengthy stretches at points. But even Which within is funny, this, he upped the budget. Just oh, absolutely! This involvement is like we got a Hayden. We can give you more money. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uni- and ironically, he wasn't big enough a star for United Artists, so Kubrick only got part of the money he was promised and not Jeez. all of it, which if you ever get too wistful for old Hollywood, there's a reason right there we should never go back to that model. But anyway, even in the case of a character like Sherry, who's very much there to play the angles, she's mm-hmm. still a person. She's less one, which we can come back to in a second, but... In this case, you have a heist movie full of people who are not really ne'er-do-wells in the traditional heist movie sense, particularly in this era of filmmaking, but were people who were just trying to get by. And especially in an era that was supposed to be celebrating American excellence in all of its forms, it's interesting to see Kubrick then show up and kind of turn that on its head. I just had this terrible image of this movie being remarketed now like The Boss. The wise guy, the tough guy, and kind of like because it does play on yeah. certain archetype cliche or whatever, but it, it, it's not about that. It's about abstraction of yeah uh, that's, those characters. That's the interesting contrast I was going to make with even with like contemporary heist films. Yeah, you know, I, whether you're pointing to subversive ones or you know, uh, you know the uh, regular crop, like it's. I, Tom, you kind of already said this, but I just want to say it in this context that like. We're getting motives up front rather than who these people are. And even then, it's not, you know, like it is obviously they're just doing their job, but it's not about them as professional as, you know, it's not Howard Hawks. It's not, you know, Johnny Toe. Like it's not, these are people whose day to day lives are forefronted before their abilities or before their, like, you know, place in this exact heist. Which can I, um, do you think, so, and apologies, I'm going to butcher the details because I just read this interview like two days ago um, about, what was it, Um, initially it wasn't supposed to be this at all. It was supposed to be a child kidnapping film based on a different novel. Um, And I'm trying to remember what the name of it was, but a lot, like, this could be code-driven and you guys can totally correct me out there, Uh, but basically Kubrick was like, I want to option this book about a child being kidnapped in the studio or uh, kind of like the remnants of Hayes Code rulings. We're like, well, you can't, you can't, 
depict anything about a child kidnapping. You can't have anything with, like, moral severity or, like, salaciousness like that. So basically, Kubrick was like, well, it's son of a bitch. All right, fine. I want to do something kind of, like, <laughs> criminal-related. I want to do something kind of different. I want to do something that fits within my wheelhouse of, like, human anger, human deceit, human depravity, human, like, frustration. But a crime film, well, you know, if we could just kind of move on from Killer's Kiss and do something a little, like, tighter, a little more focused, a little more thematic. But that's kind of crazy, too, to think, like, to that clinical point that you kind of mentioned way earlier, Dom, of, like, yeah, this is where people kind of started to see him as, like, the scientist looking over lab rats, I guess. And yet at the same time, it affords a lot of agency to all these people. And even the ones who we don't get a ton on, who are just hustlers, we get a scene or two where we get a read on how these people exist in the world, which I think is a really interesting quirk of the film. And I think even then that the, the times when it does want to show their, you know, casual brutality are things that, he finds interesting ways to stage them. The one that comes to yeah. mind for me is uh, the the policeman. And the policeman is on a schedule and he has to get to the track. And there's a great scene where someone comes running out of a store and is like, I, I need your help. They're going to kill each other. And he like, I, and you can tell that he's hearing her as she's running out and she comes to the, comes to the door of the car and is knocking on the window and he realizes, no, I got a, I got a job to do. And he just drives away. And it's this, like, small, chilling moment that doesn't completely condemn that character, but still does say something about, you know, the, like, consequences of this heist beyond obvious... Yeah, beyond, beyond the obvious, like... Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone... And X and Y. <laughs> and that's the interesting thing. So coming back to the whole theme of the week of human deceit, this is a movie that really brings that full circle, because if Fear and Desire is about the ways in which we self-deceive, and then Killer's Kiss is in the fictions we spin ourselves because we want things to turn out better than they're actually going to on their face, The Killing is the first time you get kind of the Kubrick master thesis, which is people are hedonists, People are barely more than animals, and if left to their impulses, people will embrace savagery. Because you see that over and over in a note as small as that or as big as when you had the case of the sniper who's attempting to set up shop until the black security guard takes – he eventually – realizes that he wants his company and then he has to have this moment of terrible racism. We we need to talk about – Timothy Carey there for a sec because he is a he is a scene stealer. Nikki, the, yeah. the sniper, he is so good in that small with role. The, uh, the, with, with, with the single tooth? Yeah, with, with the, the single, single tooth. T- I'm sorry, we really oh shouldn't be God. talking about physical deformities in 2018 like this because it's super rude and condescending, but it's also like, uh, you... you, you Look, the if Hereditary can make mention of the poor little girl's, like, unusual-looking face, <laughs> we can talk about Timothy Carey's single tooth because that is... A detail. Well, and I think, and what's funny too is that this is a movie populated full yeah. of noir actors sure. who Kubrick enjoyed over the years from Hayden on down. Yeah. But you also have 
a film noir that's really operating on the idea of a bunch of everyday Joes, which now, again, is kind of boilerplate heist material, but back then was a little bit bolder. The idea was criminals pulled off heists, not everyday people just looking to improve their station a little bit. And I mean, even if you look at what Johnny Clay's whole hustle really is, the purpose is so he can get out of the life and him and his wife can go to another part of the country and be normal people again. And you really have this kind of working class angst humming under it, down to the fact that the climax goes down at a racetrack, which then now and probably forever until we like outlast the savage sport of horse racing anyway, is kind of very codified in American society as a working class pursuit, both for the people involved with it and the people who gamble on it. And the police, which is part of their alibi. In a great way. Oh, absolutely. Like, the idea that the police are just in on it and it's sort of <laughs> besides the point, you know, it, it's terrific. I think even going back to, sorry, just to bring it back to Nikki as well, speaking of that working class angst and that uh, that relatability, uh, when you first meet Nikki's character, you know, it's in front of kind of a, a, a kind of a shack. And, and, and uh, Sterling Hayden, uh, Johnny Clay, and him have a conversation like, oh, how long you been in that house? And he's like... You know, a, a year, but it keeps me out of trouble. As in this idea that, like, almost all of these characters, or not almost all of these characters, but many of these characters, you know, as you're saying, have been in and out of the life. And it's always been something that can come back. And, and you can bring that in as well with um, uh, Maurice, played by uh, Cola Quariani, um, who is just this wonderful kind of strong man who comes into the. Strongman's my favorite, by the way, in the whole scheme. But like when he just he goes like gorilla Five crazy, yeah, yeah. When he goes nuts, I look. I'm a sucker for kind of wrestling, as it were. Uh, no, and when a guy does like a big show of strength as distraction or deflection or whatever you want to get, like, I'm so, oh god, like I'm sorry, like it's so cheap and it's so visceral, like yeah, cause a scene. Um. Well, and I think what's really interesting about the killing in particular too is that this is a movie that is specifically drawing your attention to the clockwork nature of the plot as you're watching it come off the rails, which is a really interesting tack to take because down to the timestamps offered by the narration, which is A, a really cool trick because spatially it lets you know where you are at all times in a film that's pretty scattered all over the place. Something he didn't want, though. Yes, which is ironic because I think it really helps the film. Not to invoke like the, the, the Nolan quotism about Inception, but he's like... Planning the heist, devising the heist, laying it out is usually the most fun part because you kind of figure out the structure, planning, and strategy that goes behind something like this. Well, and that's the thing. It's why the first hour and a half of Soderbergh's Ocean Eleven is about the planning of the plot. The planning is a lot more fun than the execution. All that's left with the execution is really a binary. It works or it doesn't. Unless you twist the binary, unless you actually, like, have something new to reveal, which makes it even more fun. Exactly. But in the case of this, you have a straightforward story that's really really elevated by the fact that it's drawing your attention to how doomed it is from the get-go, which is another thing. I mean, like, grim nihilism is obviously nothing new for the noir genre, even at this point in film, but by that same... By the way, grim nihilism, great death metal name, bam. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Brutal. But also, but also, you get, you really get a look at what happens when you can have the best laid plan in the world and all it takes is a second to second or two of yeah. human error 
and it's all for naught. It's almost Ray Bradbury's Sound of Thunder, right? Like, uh, all it takes is a butterfly landing to alter the course of events irrevocably. Yeah. And uh, it, and then you get that really bleak final punchline where Hayden watches his entire take, the yeah. thing that people died for, scatter out into the night all over a runway, and then he just waits for the police because, as he puts it, in what's a hell of a final line, especially for this era, what's the difference? Do you guys find that scene as hilarious as I do? Um, oh, absolutely. Were I they... was shocked when I first saw it, and whenever you watched it years later, I'm like, that's funny. That's oh, absolutely. black comedy at its finest. Where they're, where they're about to get past the G-Men yeah. until they can't flag a taxi, and it's like the taxi <laughs> is just like the one last thing that really puts the nail in the coffin. As someone who has, like, conniption fits over not getting a, like, getting a lift canceled at the last minute, like, I can totally identify <laughs> Like something stupid just kind of happening by happenstance. I think the the one part of the ending for me, and I did, mm-hmm. it, it was weird rewatching it. I haven't watched it in about five, six years. Um, I, I have to say that I think that scene is a little bit of a come down after the the really? bloodbath with George. I, I think, and then I love that scene right after where he just stumbles out onto uh, Johnny Clay's car. And uh, George goes into a car and and runs off uh, back mm-hmm. to uh, Marie, go to Cherry, and I, I don't know. There's something about the way the rhythm of that scene goes that I almost would have liked it better. And I know that would have left loose ends, but there's something. There's just something so climactic about that George bloodbath, which I will talk about when we get to cinematography and. Uh, <laughs> Shots because it, I, I literally rewound it like four times because I needed to just bask in it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. There's something about that ending that feels a little bit, I don't know. This, I, I mentioned this to Dom before. This is mm-hmm. slightly a blasphemic, but, um, I, I, Jim Thompson, I know, is considered one of the, the masters of pulp, of hard boiled noir, and I just, um, there are times that I just think the dialogue in this tries a little too hard. I think it's a little... There um, are absolutely parts that try to have the cadence of, like, a great Preston Sturgis script or yeah. something like that. And it never it never quite gets there, but I don't think that's really a lack on any of the performers' parts or even on Kubrick's screenplay, though that's probably a little bit guiltier there. I think it's just an issue. The film is in a very different business. It's hard to pull off that breezy dialogue in a film that is this concerned with watching the dominoes fall, because that's the thing. That was my big takeaway rewatching The Killing for this recording. This is a movie about Kubrick lingering on the setup of the dominoes for an extended majority of the runtime so that he can watch them topple quick. The toppling almost seems incidental to the story itself. But I, I think some of that dialogue does, you know, does work. It feels like swallowing like cement. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but like, I, I don't know. Okay, I guess what I actually want to talk about is I'd like to talk about Sherry for a bit. What What do you guys think about Sherry? Because I, I think she's kind of boring. Sherry I, it, is an interesting creation, just in as much as she's the noir femme fatale, like to the letter, the person who's constantly saying one thing and doing another cuckolding her poor husband, even though I don't think the movie engenders enough sympathy for George, if anything, 
And she's very much in that tradition of the noir the mall. viper. Yeah. Yes. I, th- I think her transparency, though, is off-putting in a way that I never found it, like, fun in the same yeah. way. You know, I think she's trying to do, like, almost like a Dorothy Malone thing, you know, written on the wind style. I think that's something I wanted more of. I think I wanted more melodrama in her delivery. Well, the problem is she gets she gets a lot of character autonomy for a character that ends up not ultimately mattering that much to where the story goes. And I think that's a part of it. She gets some of the better lines in the whole movie, I would argue, but then it's in service of being shot in the gut by George. I I love Johnny's line uh, that you have a dollar sign where your heart is supposed to be. (laughs) Which, as hard-boiled dialogue goes... It's it's pretty good. I'm chef-kissing, and I don't (laughs) know if you can hear it. Pretty B+. Uh... (laughs) But no, I think there's I think there's something interesting too to be said that with Irene Kane in Killer's Kiss and now with the character of Sherry here, sure. you're getting the beginnings of the Kubrickian woman as well, who's less a person than an ideological substitute for whatever ideas the film is driving at. Because I feel like a lot of the if not the narrative thrust, then certainly the dramatic thrust of the film lies with Sherry. And her the tragedy of her story with George, because it's supposed to be a parable about avarice. Now, whether that's effective, we can certainly debate. But I feel like she gets a lot of the dramatic heft and yet is not really key to how the third act plays out. I do actually like as well, I, I should mention, to give her a little more credit, I, I think that her relationship with, with Val is uh, a little more complicated than, yes. uh, you know, the the single, like, Paramore-style story. Like, like this isn't like a um, strangers on a train where they're just getting ready to off everybody. Like, the, this Val and Sherry also seem to have a relationship that's yeah. based on some weird inadequacies and a sense of, like, you know, fear about, well, not leaving each other because he's afraid Val's going to yeah. leave it, which is funny because I, I was looking up. Apparently, Val was uh, a lead on an incredibly powerful medical drama at the time. <laughs> so it's fascinating for me to think that... Um, it was not General Hospital, was it? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it, it was, not quite was, so yeah, timeless. Seasons? Okay, just make it sure. 50s edition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just the idea of, of you know, like this uh, drop-dead, uh, gorgeous uh, surgeon playing a, a hood like this is just it, it's really fun to think of it'd be like george clooney doing out of sight or something yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well but unless you guys have any closing thoughts i feel like that'll bring us out pretty nicely from our opening discussion and we'll jump in to take a very short break but after this we're going to come back we're going to talk cinematography we're going to talk score. We're going to talk all the other things that make Stanley Kubrick's films Stanley Kubrick's films. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned to Filmography. And we're back. Thank you for joining us for the second half of Filmography. If for some reason you are just tuning into this <laughs> podcast after the ad break, I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and this week, along with Michael Snydell and Blake Goble, we are breaking down the early years of Stanley Kubrick. Now, before the break, we talked about the films at large. Now we're going to kind of hone in on the close categories a little bit. And if we're talking Kubrick, we might as well go visual. Let's talk cinematography and editing. So this is 
sort of a strange place to jump in because these are all pretty different films in a lot of crucial respects. And we sort of touched on this a little bit before the break, but in the case of Fear and Desire, let's talk about the editing in particular and how he accomplishes some of the tonal maneuvers he pulls off throughout that film. I'm, gonna, I'm like biting my or like twisting my tongue right now and trying to articulate just, you know, as you kind of suggested, montage heavy and very editorial approach. And like you could call it kind of a, a loose, weak hand, just kind of like feeling out Russian montage or whatever you want to call it to kind of like it's grasping for a mood. Fine. That would be the easiest way to put it as I was kind of dancing around saying it. But, well, And I think that's a fair way of putting it. And yeah. I think what's really interesting is one of the scenes where that mood is achieved the most distinctly is, I would argue, as we alluded to, the sequence in which our four soldiers that we follow through the yeah. film end up happening upon enemy combatants yeah. and murder them in rather grisly fashion. Yeah. But it's the kind of murder that you could get away with in going back to the beginning of the show, the Hayes Code days, because in very much in the style of Psycho's shower scene, it's violence through implication and montage. There's not a penetrative stabbing on screen in the film, and yet it's a brutal sequence, partly because there are all these cutaways to a hand, stew. a single yeah. hand grasping a fistful of stew, which is just this visceral, tactile image. Yeah, yeah. it's such a weirdly gory, <laughs> it's such a weirdly gory stew, too, as, as in there's, yeah, just... It's so thick. <laughs> Absolutely. It is a viscous stew. Yeah. <laughs> so. You guys, I think I want some stew. Uh, no, but, yeah. And is it is it amateur hour in the sense that, like, it's just kind of, what did our colleague once call, like, a Star Wars movie? Spaghetti on the wall. I just want to put in, like, all the inserts and kind of crazed shots I can to kind of accumulate into some sort of jarring effect, even though I'm not fully certain what the result is going to be with this. Well, and the thing is, to an end, it's a masterpiece of tone through implication because mm-hmm. it, it's the most compositional film school 101 kind of stuff, right? You have an extended hand grasping a knife white knuckled and then that image of the hand clasping the stew yeah. and through the miracle of filmmaking we can then take that away as a violent perverse moment took place and there is to the film's credit something genuinely kind of perverse and transgressive about that moment yeah. you're seeing these guys cross yet another line of war that they never imagined they would have to find themselves confronting you get that moment where, again, when um, Paul Mazursky's Sydney at the end is paddling in on the raft, you get this moment where it's, this is somebody who has gone beyond the breach. Now, excluding poor Mac, who's just laying dead on the side of the raft, you get Sydney, who, and again, this was a world only beginning to come to terms with concepts like post-traumatic stress disorder. You had men returning... Billy Connolly said they used to call it bomb happy. He was just bomb happy. Leaving on the, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. That's like the worst euphemism <laughs> right? for like, it. Oh, I really, it's so cute how upset he is. I really don't like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm like genuinely kind of unsettled I by that. I think it was that. a British term for it, but yeah, no. Uh, th- that they're actually trying to assess, tackle, and articulate what um, post-traumatic stress disorder... Or, or, no, it's not even post... It's 
it's straight up stress disorder within the moment. Well, absolutely. And you get this was still a time when we were forming a language for that when it wasn't part of the cinematic lexicon yet. And you have this interesting attempt by Kubrick to kind of give an emotional resonance to that through pure composition. It splatters, but it hits. I I think the but I, I think there is also some merit to the discussion of amateurism, even in the editing. Like, I, you yeah. know, going back to Paul Mazursky a little bit earlier in the film, I I, I, cr- or I didn't cringe, but I, I rolled my eyes a little bit when it does do a flashback to the murder, not ten minutes after. Like, like there is something in that editing, and especially the way it continually relies on narration that's almost, you know... Uh, reminiscent of something like Red Badge of Courage, like this like macabre, poetic, but also uh, deeply kind of pseudo-intellectual. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I think particularly in a lot of those introductory voiceover features, you get a distinct sense that, to go back to Blake's point from the first half of the show, there's something very film school about it, for lack of more eloquent phrasing. I mean, decades before (laughs) film school was really a major industry term. But just the same, there's something very basic about it. Let us leverage our generation's most cutting insult, basic. Or or even an overconfidence in those images, like as in, absolutely, as in he realized that he had something good in the case of a few of these, and he's like, you know what, I got to go back to it, or <laughs> I yeah. have to follow that mm-hmm. same rhythm. Mm-hmm. Well, and bit. it's a, and it's a very simple film on its face, so lingering on the handful of images that actually do stick, there's certainly something to be said for that. Especially back in an era when pickup photography was not a thing, you had what you filmed, and you figured out how to make a movie out of it. But as far as, like, a callback that I do think really works that I, I didn't mention in the first half is uh, the, the dog who comes into, in the, in the middle of the forest, and then you then find out is uh, owned by the general, uh, who they then endeavor to take out. But that becomes a callback that's, that's um, you know, I utilized it in weirdly... Uh, weirdly emotional ways the way that dog um is unaware of what happens to its owner the way that the blood kind of stains this wood that it licks for a second but like, that dog kind of speaks to like the nebulous characteristics of the film as well right absolutely. like this dog has no comprehension or understanding of what these men are kind of feeling in the same way that the film tries to present conflict and broad abstract terms. well and, and then even yeah. even when the men cool. eventually yeah. go back to accost the general mm-hmm. kind of the dramatic high point of the feature it's this very Colonel Curtian moment to go back to Apocalypse now as a basis of comparison it's this moment where you know we've done what we came down the river to do sure but it's so far besides purpose or value by this stage of the game that it might as well just not have happened at oh, all so he's like an errand dog i get it now okay <laughs> he also says i surrender too which i i mean as a diff- as a contrast to something like kurtz like there isn't that yeah, I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from with the apocalypse now, but there is a uh, pathetic quality. Oh, absolutely. To, to that sequence that, um, yeah, like not only underlines, you know, the futility of war and 
the uh, effects of and desolation of uh, being behind enemy lines, but um, also again, yeah, just uh, a, a cruelty and, and a pr- yeah. primacy to the way. Absolutely, and if I can, if I can kind of relegate this down a little bit, what do you think the film accomplishes rhythmically? The visual and the compositional combined. What is what is Kubrick swinging for with fear and desire from a rhythmic vantage? Other other than not quite nailing it, which I see <laughs> I see your face and I I kind of agree. No, so so to the listeners, like Dom is on the opposite side of the table of Michael and I. I think we're both kind of like contorting right now. I was gonna say jazz, but if like a jazz musician in the band kept dropping an instrument every two minutes, like. <laughs> Like, damn it! Uh, no, uh, I, I think that's an interesting Like, the rhythm notion, it has no rhythm. It's staccato. It's it's punchy. It's weird. But it's it's also committed. Like, it, it sees its way through, albeit kind of, like, very sloppily. Yeah. It's, it's punchy, but I also think that there are distinct segments that feel... Um, more committed to that yeah. to that erratic rhythm. It's sweaty, as you said earlier, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and Killer's that's Kiss, why the instruments slip out because it's so sweaty. <laughs> Jeez. Where Killer's Kiss, I think, is almost completely, uh, sorry, uh, aesthetically, jeez, um, the it's same, the, the same, the same until at least really? that end. I, I, I would say it's way more buttoned up. It's like okay, they saw he they they saw me at my like sloppiest now to kind of tighten things up, as it were. Well, but and even be, if I don't like it, it's like kind of putting a, a decent suit on a teenager, I guess. Well, and, and just we're to go with these metaphors, just to toss out some crucial context, these yeah. were not particularly well seen movies for the record, sure. and I'm not trying to be pedantic in response to you or anything no, no, like that, Blake. Yeah, yeah. But no, at no, the, no, understandable. But at the same time, at the end of the day. These were, and just to prove that nothing ever truly changes in Hollywood, these early Kubrick films were critics' darlings who did not necessarily catch on with a mainstream audience, which would be a problem if his, by and large, for the rest of his career with a lot of his work, but we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Oh, so you mean Killer's Kiss was a Sundance film about just being a young guy in America at the time? Uh, Don't you dare. I have to. Don't you dare. No, 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 but yeah, I totally get what you're saying. So if we're talking, so I guess if we're going to move on from Fear and Desire a little bit, because that's very brass tacks basics, into Killer's (laughs) Kiss... I think what's interesting with your point, Blake, is that if we're looking at fear and desire as something very not entirely unstructured, but certainly lacking in discipline, I think we'd agree. Then Killer's Kiss, I think, is much more fully formed. I think it gives off a really interesting impression that he really develops further in the killing, which is giving off, especially editorially, this feel and sensation of an eternally tightening noose. And I feel like a lot of Killer's Kiss, especially once it hits that boxing sequence and until, again, the ending, which is kind of at odds with everything, you get this film that's constantly telling you something bad is coming. Yeah. And it is omnipresent, and it is going to find poor Davy no matter what he does. I think visually, too, it's understandable that even Kubrick himself uh, referred to this as a calling card. Like, I, like I... 
to be uh, to be um funny they call it demo reels out of columbia college now right yeah <laughs> no but if you're absolutely honest, yeah yeah i, I mean yeah. to be fair to blake i i'm not saying that for instance fear and desire is not uh, a shaggy shaggy experience but i just think oh that, it's shaggy I, I think that killer's kiss even with its you know experimentation with negatives it, it's uh, the ways it uh plays with dollies the way that the um the uh that there's such a, a sense of of sleaze to the cinematography and yeah. and the the way even darkness is shot I, and that and that doesn't come that doesn't come through like obvious content it's not like we're hanging around you know uh, a strip club or these obvious signifiers of oh absolutely sleaze. yeah well, and it's it's the noir signature, right? It's constant shadows even in the light of day, which you see a lot <laughs> in The Killing, and you also see it in this. And some, some of that is genre, but I also feel like Killer's Kiss is getting much closer to the refined lines of what we think of as the Kubrickian visual, you know? Yeah. We're not at full-blown, perfectly symmetrical tableau quite yet, but we're definitely pushing in that direction. I think especially... And I'll talk about this a little more in our group category in a second, but there's a sequence on a rooftop near the end of the film where Kubrick just lets Davy shrink and enlarge in the frame as the camera moves, and it's all blocking that gives you the size and dimension because it's this overwhelming, almost kept... He manages to make the open sky of a New York rooftop feel claustrophobic, and that's a hell of a thing in and of itself. He's taking a wide-open 1950s New York and making it feel small. Yeah, and and then immediately after that is then making a sequence that seems relatively, uh, you know, like spatially uh, standard. Like like they're mm-hmm. you know traveling. I can't remember whether they're traveling through a window or down a ladder or something, and and end up in this space that seems relatively standard until he starts. <laughs> breaking the 180 degree line and starts just you know throttling his camera every which way and makes a small space into this you know this fever dream nightmare in the same way he does much later in his career well and i and i think as far as if we're talking this week about kubrick establishing some of his hallmarks i think this is the first time you see some of those nauseating close-ups that would become another major 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 signature of his particularly in films where he's trying to induce a certain sense of dread or anxiety or pretentious fear or whatever it is that he's going for and you see that a lot more in films like the shining and eyes wide shut and even barry linden pretty often but killer Kiss is really the first time you see some of those stark close-ups because you get a few of those in Fear and Desire with Paul Mazursky in particular, but in Killer's Kiss especially, he loves to look at his actors in sort of this staggered close-up. But even if you look at Frank Silvera in some of the late scenes and how Kubrick looks at him, he looks like a man who's coming undone at the yeah. seams, which again, speaking of Kubrickian hallmarks, the image of a generally aged man falling apart in front of you. 
But he's like, I, I think that there's even something more psychologically unwound than, you know, we, we have seen pl- in noir plenty of tropes of men who are undone by, by women, you know, by femme fatales or not femme fatales. But, like, there's something so psychologically severe about this that it's almost like, you know, speaking again of, like, Greek tragedy or something like it's you know something like uh Circe and and the Odyssey like there's some there's such a delirium and um total breakdown in standard human behavior oh but it's with uh Silvera's character not to be a sadist but it's just fun it's just (laughs) fun watching people like go unhinged (laughs) like not not to not to be the the guy screaming in a parking spot but it's like isn't it fun to watch Fred McMurray go nuts because Barbara Stanwyck plays him in Double Indemnity like yeah it's way oversimplified but it's also like come on it's fun to watch people get unhinged which is why I like people having conniption fits on the street and things like that well and one of my favorite things is that apparently Irene Kane even once observed that like Kubrick is a director attracted to sex and sadism as early back as this imagine how she felt later but regardless you, you definitely see that kind of tone emerge in the visual there where you get this slow escalation of dread where it almost feels yeah. like, and he plays with this over and over again about throughout his career, especially in eyes wide shut where there's this constant humming dread just out of the frame in almost every scene of the movie where you can feel it encroaching even in scenes where it maybe isn't supposed to even in some of the more romantic moments between Gloria and Davy, what you get is this image of Davy looking through bars, yeah. looking over to her. There's this disconnect. There's this yearning. And there's also, yes, this Hitchcockian kind of voyeurism to it as well. And voyeurism is going to become really key in the following yeah. episodes of this podcast. But here, well, also, uh, and just quick to like, it's also the systemic behavior, how systems affect behavior, not to like reiterate, like the, the long running theme of like, how do people behave in this situation? How do people within prison, within space stations, take your pick, but it's just like, put them in within the confines of that box. And that's why they act and behave this way. At least that's the Cooper Callmark that I'm always kind of fascinated with, not to call back to seafarers and like, how do these longshoremen behave because of the fact that they're on the shore for way too long and work in a union for way too long? Not that I'm anti-union. If you if you just if you want like the origin story of what happens to the dudes from the seafarers, just go yeah. watch The Master. That's basically what comes next. Oh god. So <laughs> I think the other thing about that Gloria and Davy, their kind of courtship scene, I, I found it so creepy when he was in his in her room. And yeah. looking through her things, like uh, literally rifling through their things, you know. Oh my god, I, that reminds me. I, I, we didn't even talk about the bell, the ballerina scene at all, oh, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. which is fascinating from a filmmaking perspective because it starts with a flashback, and it's a flashback of only, and it's, I'm sure it's just a budgetary a budgetary restriction that required the flashback to be. Mm-hmm formatted as it is, but it's just watching uh, what would be Gloria's sister um, dance as a ballerina as she, like, chronicles this sordid history of her family. And it's like, 
it's the scene that I guess should be a, a premonition for what's to come, but it's um, it, it's another scene that it, that seems in line what I, what I think Dom was talking about. Well, absolutely, and I think to an end, it it gets at a lot of the notions of faded glory that the film's playing around with, which really is play again to reiterate with the genre of the boxing movie, which again I could talk for like an hour about that, that we don't have time for here, but that's like a major, that's a major Hollywood lineage subgenre. That's something that is invoking a set of very immediate and particular responses in their audience that Kubrick is then in turn manipulating, especially with a lot of that imagery of the boxing sequence. I mean, now when we think of boxing, it's very kinetic. It's very raw. We think of Raging Bull. We think of even Ryan Coogler's work on Creed. Creed. (laughs) And you get these you get these virtuoso sequences where there's something almost kind of poetic about the violence. But what Kubrick gets at here is something much more primal and much more elemental than that. There's a savagery exactly there is a savagery to the hits in the movements of the scene that's genuinely unpleasant and it's kind of at a dissonance with much of the romance story happening around it which makes then that flashback with the ballerina all the more curious because it then trades the visual brutality of that sequence for an emotional brutality of sorts well, and then I'm thinking of like kind of peers of the era, the setup with Robert Ryan, Wallace Beery, The Champ, and those kinds of boxing films. And like The Champ is just so sentimental. And the setup is actually a pretty good kind of progenitor, I guess, of like trying to play a plot against the actual action in the ring as a metaphorical like representation of how the character's feeling. The setup is like kind of this rejuvenation, but in Killer's Kiss, it's just to your point. It is brutal. It feels harsh. It's it's done in high contrast, like harshly uh, stylized and lit fashion. And that's what's kind of so cool about like Kubrick. Again, not to be like the Tumblr like black and white photo kid, but it's it's just it's it's it feels unique and it still feels like kind of edgy. Not to put that hip word on it. No, and I think what's very telling about that is we've knocked on the ending a lot, yeah. and I think rightfully so. I would argue, but <laughs> I feel like part of why that ending is so jarring is it feels so old Hollywood that it's yeah. almost at odds with the entire hour and change coming before it. Yeah, and I feel like if we're but then again, at the same time, old Hollywood can work in this mode, because then if we jump over to the killing, which is a very traditional film in terms of if not narrative structure, then certainly story structure at the very least. You have a lot of interesting visual choices in that as well that are kind of at odds with this very well-traveled genre he was kind of working in by this point, because, for instance, You have another Kubrick signature emerging in The Killing, which is packing the characters into claustrophobic frames. I talked about those extreme close-ups, and those are definitely a hallmark, but even in just standard expository sequences, some of the exchanges between Sherry and George and the like, you very much get the feel that these people are stranded on islands, and even though they're all part of the same meticulous Byzantine plot they are all very much in their own corners of the world. Yeah, and I, I think that especially, I, I think another thing to add to that is that there's a there's a total lack of romanticism in the momentum of that film from, from very early on 
to, to the execution of the film, which um, I'd, I'd like to speak about is, um, I can't remember whether I said this, but it's, there's no montage in the execution. That, that's become another thing that's so um, prevalent in modern heist films where they point to the Oceans films or apparently, I was going to say Logan Lucky, so I'm just saying Soderbergh films, apparently. Um, David Mamet's <laughs> heist, that was uh, the big mention yes. in the House of the House Games. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. House of uh, Games, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, so, but anyways, like... That tough that, talking thing. Anyways, the execution of so many of those heists are uh, montage has become so... Uh, it's, it's such the standard thing, again. And I think that uh, the thing about the killing is that it's one the asynchronous, not the asynchronous, the synchronous timeline, and um, yeah, the disinterest in, in like condensing everything. I, mm-hmm. Everything is given this plainness that's you know like almost reminiscent of something like Rafifi, which is all about process. Well, and what's really interesting in that respect is how clean a lot of the editing is, especially compared to the last couple films we're talking about, where he's yeah. clearly trying to mess around with form in a very conspicuous way. You have a movie that, to go back to one of my points before the break, you have a movie that's drawing attention to the seams in the same way that the story draws attention to the chronology as you're watching the story come undone simultaneously. It's very much drawing attention to how perfectly assembled everything is, even as it's constantly teasing that that perfect assemblage is all folly and it's going to fall apart. I would almost argue that it's also kind of like a hint at his dark sense of humor and kind of like his notion of human folly over confidence. We can talk about Dr. Strangelove and like the pride and confidence of systems that inevitably fail. 2001, pride and confidence in systems that fail. Barry Lyndon, abuse of those systems <laughs> that fail. Like, all the best, like, what, what's the expression, best laid plans are for, yeah. Um, and that's what's actually, I still think is really cool about the killing. Like, for all of its effort into being kind of methodical and meticulous, it's like, yeah, but at the end of the day, shit happens, slash, people are going to be people, and uh, Cooper kind of knows that. Well, and I think you really, I mean, in addition to that ending, which I do think there is a genuine streak of dark comedy to this movie. Yes. Yeah. I think even even if the narration was studio mandated, you still get kind of a bleak comedy in just this very bone dry. At 9.59, the police officer arrived. Like, there's something sure. a little bit almost deadpan about that. And I don't know All if that's just... like a yakety sax. Exactly. Kind of yeah. I don't know if there's just that's just modern interpretation, which I'll openly admit is probably at least a component of it. But you also get this genuine sense that... These are all people humming along on a method that is about to fail them profoundly. Yeah. And down to even the little gags, like the woman obsessing over her dog. The second Kubrick goes back to her, you know she is going to be the wrench in the gear. You know minutes before that reveal, she is going to be the wrench in the gear. Because it's like an entire movie of Chekhov's guns being planted (laughs) in a certain respect, both visually and thematically, where you are watching him... Again, to reuse an analogy, you're watching him set up the dominoes for the express intention of paying off their tumbling because you know they're going to tumble. Kubrick knows they're going to tumble. The pleasure is in seeing how he's going to unspool that. And I think a lot of that is the editing, which in that vaguely asynchronous style, 
um, that is still synchronous in its manner. Yeah. I never quite know how to articulate that either. <laughs> sure. But even in that, st- but even in that stylistic choice, just editorially, the film is constantly hinting that things are going to go to hell long before they actually do. I think, sorry, I just want to say one more thing about that. I don't know. I think it is the the dog thing that just feels a little hoary to me. Like, it, it feels like Oh, this. boo, the dog is vanity, <laughs> pride, ego, it's your trinkets, no, your prize. It's not something you expect out of uh, Kubrick. Like, I, I, I will... I will 100% admit there's a there's a streak of dark comedy, but there's something about I was going to say, totally that. casually disagree. But there's uh, something yeah. about that final thing that that feels... It's not sentimental, because it's still, it's still no, mean. No, no, it's, it's yeah, still it mean. But it's there is something just a little bit goofy about it in a way that I feel betrays the film. And, and granted, this is... I, I, I mean, there's no way this is a... This isn't a film that's at least partly meant to be funny. I mean, you could talk about Sherry. Like, I, I wrote down, um, I, I love the line Sherry has early on where, um, you know, she's treating George like a like a doormat and, you know, playing with him like a cat plays with, with a, a piece of yarn. Sure. And she's like, you know, if, if people, like, she's talking about how uh, he's giving her a headache and she goes, you know, if people didn't have headaches, uh, the company that makes aspirin would go out of business. Like, like it's those little yeah. acidic. Or even I, yeah, I, I actually took notation of a bunch of sherry lines as well throughout the film. And one of my favorites is when she says to George early on, "I'm not pretty and I'm not very smart," which is one of the best undersells for a morally duplicitous anti-heroine to drop early in a movie. I just I love things like that. And even going even going back to the haze, there are little there are little indications. There there are bare shoulders and on screen yeah. drinking and a bunch of things. So you're seeing the well, strictures. I'm sure Sterling Hayden brought that from home, but uh. you're seeing the strictures <laughs> of the time starting to ease down by the yeah, time sure. Kubrick gets to this point. And I think that's really interesting because you have an ending where really the only grand act of violence in the movie The Killing is when a horse gets shot. Yeah. That's really the only moment of overt violence until yeah. George's Jeez. meltdown. Because if we're going to... I feel like we need, before we move on from this, to come back to George. Because if we're talking about great moments in Kubrick's Ovure, maybe the first genuinely terrific one is when George finally has his William H. Macy and Boogie Nights moment where he's so furiously <laughs> tired of being cuckolded that he just absolutely loses his damn mind and becomes a murderer. That whole sequence beginning with the uh, with you know uh, Val coming to rob the the robbers <laughs> and then you know George stumbling out you know George the the perfect symbol of um, incompetence and impotence, <laughs> just stumbling out the door and uh, well, and even stumbling through the hotel room full of bodies, yes. <laughs> which is a very like modern crime movie sequence in this 1956 movie. Something out of like Shane Black. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I was gonna say it's almost SVU. Like, well, they're dead. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Well, and I think so. If we're talking visual. 
and we've been talking visual for a while, and we could stay here all day and all night doing it, but it is late in the evening as we are recording this for you nice people. So we're going to jump into, if you had to pick, what is the lasting image from this trio of films we have seen tonight? Snydell, bring us in. Yeah, well, I this brings me back to the bloodbath at the end of The Killing, where George uh, shoots everybody in the room. And the reason why I like this so much, the exact shot I'm talking about, let's get as pedantic as possible with this, is uh, after we see George's anguished uh, face as he realizes in his uh, moment of glory, he shot everybody as opposed to just the the bad guys in the room and uh the the shot has kind of this woozy tenor there's kind of a music that almost feels like a rumba in the background and uh the shot just kind of woozily pans over this pile this this hilarious pile of bodies that that just looks bizarrely placed as if the way that they fell is also, you know, like a, a, a contortionist <laughs> final position. <laughs> um, I, and just the way that that camera pans and then it, it, it then cuts to George going outside and stumbling in this drunken homicidal <laughs> stupor onto a Johnny Clay's car. It's, it's something that I I think I said earlier, I rewound that moment multiple times because I just wanted to see how we staged it. And yeah, uh, cinematographer, um, again, uh, Ballard, Ballard, who, you know, is no uh, is no stranger to body counts (laughs) as the wild bunch would show you (laughs) and the rest of Peckinpah's filmography. But yeah, it's just it's so beautifully staged it has the weirdness i want from kubrick and yeah it's it's well and to that same point my pick is for the aforementioned roof shot in killer's kiss because not only again i made my point already about it making the open new york skies claustrophobic which alone is kind of remarkable but it also captures kind of the open-ended horror of like it's it it gives off that sensation of when you're running in a nightmare in a manner where you're running and running and you don't seem to be going anywhere and you're aware that you're not really going anywhere yeah. and that awareness makes it all the more unsettling and all the more frightening and in that same way you get this image of this poor man just sprinting away from forces he can't begin to understand over this endless Like, it almost appears almost tundra-esque, just this endless, vacuous space of rooftops where he's just trying to find safety and refuge, and there is none, and then he ends up in a mannequin factory, which is the scariest place to end up when you're lost. There's such a blackness to the—I'm remembering, like, the the little, like— 
not, not houses on the roofs, but like the uh, the, the water towers yeah, the and water things towers, like that. So yes, yes, yes. Peering off the top, there's such a absolutely and you silhouette can, quality to them. And I couldn't quite place it, but you can even see one of the bridges in the background, and that looks like it may as well be a million miles away. And it's just it's this very isolationist image from a filmmaker who would eventually become synonymous with those. Just two quick things for both of you guys: like, a do you find mannequins as creepy as I do? Yes. B, Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, B, uh, this is such a dumb callback to 2016 Ghostbusters, new Ghostbusters, <laughs> when Leslie Jones walks into a room at the bottom of a music hall and says, room full of mannequins, a.k.a. room full of nightmares, I'm out of here. <laughs> and I'm like, that couldn't have been a killer's kiss callback, could it? Like, no, no, no way! But um, now, now that we're just kind of pairing things together like this, I'm just going to assume that Ghostbusters 2016 has Kubrick in mind for yeah. that scene. We Paul paired Fe- Roseanne and Killer's Kiss. I think we can These go people anywhere. know what they're doing. Uh, Paul Feig, if you're listening, feel free to ape <laughs> our concepts. Mr. Feig, I love doing heavyweights. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but as long as you're on deck, Blake, tell oh. us what your favorite lasting image was. Yeah, absolutely. And just uh, also a quick thing, uh, Snydell with the, the, the shot of the hanging bodies. Uh, also, a, I love the idea that Lucy and Ballard, like I hope someone at United Artists or MGM was like, we need a shot of dead bodies. Get me that Ballard guy. <laughs> we got him for the wild bunch. Uh, but be, the way you kind of like characterizing the, the hovering imagery of those bodies, it's like if I were a little more morbid, I would get a small black and white photo of that frame. <laughs> for like a collection of black and white stills and stuff. I, I'm not a stranger to having like movie still banners on Facebook and like frame photos from stills and stuff. And like this stuff that you guys are describing is just like absolute gorgeous beauty, black and white, high contrast, my my repartee. Anyway, uh, my, my pick, if I were to pick a pick... Uh, among these three there are some stuff that I like in all these movies like I love close up shots of Private Sydney's face and Feared and Desire just kind of losing it I I love uh, kind of the closing shot of the money flying into the wind in uh, The Killing uh, but if I were to pick a fave it's from Killer's Kiss and uh, you know if, if you're listening right now go to YouTube I think it's Killer's Kiss click six seven eight out of eleven it's called watch your step and it's these two encroaching silhouette like hood figures uh kind of approaching uh uh, you know approaching uh, ominously and dangerously and it's so cool because they're closing into the frame it's like literally like the most literal metaphorical uh sense of closing and you can imagine and they're like deacon's fanboys who kind of drool roger deacon's uh, nuts who are like silhouettes are the coolest thing ever man <laughs> and I'm like yeah, yeah it all depends on the usage in this case it's actually ominous and dreadful and impactful and it's just it's super cool like cleanly shot uh, imagery and there there's the total fanboy in me that's like yeah yeah Kubi Kubrick shot that he shot it himself uh, and it, with the Kubi, I've lost all credibility yet again, but I still think it's a really, really killer shot. Uh, pardon the use of the word killer there. The well, two little details. Sorry, I, I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead, Tom. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that, well, especially with that segue, I feel like <laughs> that'll take us right into our penultimate category of the evening, overwhelming sounds, 
which will be talking about the music in all of these films. Ooh. And we'll have a lot more to discuss in the coming weeks when we start to really diversify these soundtracks a little bit. But here, we can actually talk about a different kind of interesting connection, because all three of these films were composed by Gerald Freed, who worked with Kubrick on all of Fried, the- fried, you can't tell me it's not fried. <laughs> I, I'm trying to be cultured here, Goble. <laughs> help me help you. So, but in the in the case of Gerald Freed's work on all of these films, you get a similarity of sounds, and yet you can see Kubrick experimenting with soundscapes even in these feature, even in these very genre heavy features, because you vary from some of the really ugly dissonances in the Fear and Desire compositions, yeah. which end up really going a long way towards putting over the film's whole idea of a fugue of death and terror and nothingness. At wartime. And then you move on to Killer's Kiss, which is sort of the first instance of Kubrick using big band and jazz sounds for maximum emotional terror. Yeah. And then you jump into The Killing, which is an extension of that Killer's Kiss sound, but also adds in a lot of typical typical noir atmospherics from lone trumpets to a lot of very staccato horn sounds to a lot of the hallmarks of the noir genre. And some like cool percussive sounds like some Oh, absolutely. There's some really up. Yeah. There's That's some the really interesting ahead, yeah, yeah, there's some really interesting kettle drum sounds yeah. happening throughout that. And I guess I'm just curious what worked or what stood out regardless in either in any of these to either of you. Um, so if I, if I can jump, like Fear and Desire, we, we here at COS did our like big honking ranking of, uh, Kubrick films like a year ago and it was a pain in the ass because it was like ranking four to three star movies across board. Cause we're all like, we all kind of like these, even Fear and Desire, we kind of like for some of the details. And one of the things I, I did the write up on Fear and Desire and one of the things that kind of dug was like, there's almost this like smarmy use of military march and horn music and stuff like that where I'm like even if it is kind of you know uh, first timer obvious it's also like but it's well placed to kind of fit the theme like these isolated military sounds just to kind of like scrub down and um, make you know the the regal sound of that kind of music sound a little less optimistic or proud or whatever but painfully ironic that being said, if I can jump across to the killing, like th- that jazz sound is so cool. That rumbling sound is like such a great build, and like it, you know, it, it's it's great texture. There's no hook, there's no melody. It's just sound, and it's great sound design. Well, and in one sense, it's the way I got to thinking about it, especially yeah. with the killing in particular, was timpanies without timpanies. That's that's yeah, where I kind of yeah. came back to because you get these deep guttural drum sounds but without hitting like the timpani or any of those typical you know bass heavy drum sounds you just have a score in this where it kind of has the fleet cadence of like the jazz score you expect from a movie about a big score because nowadays we come and associate the heist movie with kind of the fleet footed jazz score yes and what's funny is like like i was saying even when we if we try to rank these the music is aptly used across the board on all three of these it's his music is like aces across all of his movies but um oh absolutely because even with killer's kiss i think you're using kind of i mean it'd be outmoded by the 50s but you're kind of using like 
a hip new swinging jazz style in the service of this very ominous singular kind of dread. Yeah, Killer's Kiss was definitely the one where I was, there was, I think it was specifically a scene where they're on the roof. And it's uh, the way that um, this, these sounds of ships and this kind of like distant symbol kind of melt into each other. And it, it almost takes on like the uh, the the feel of like almost experimental techno like like that like bathysphere esque um as sound to like the rhythms and oh absolutely it's it's repurposing jazz and big band sounds yeah. as almost ambient noise in a way funny yeah. i was going to like posit what there might have been a trendy notion of a two with leonard bernstein uh and his score his music for on the waterfront and just kind of having like the the grumbling rumbling sounds of like city percussion as it were and maybe maybe it was a trendy thing or maybe it was deliberate but it is kind of cool how it almost feels atmospheric and like yeah. ethereal as opposed to uh, traditional melody driven like big band david newman or not david newman um which newman alfred newman yeah um, that was the first name that was coming to mind david newman did bill and ted sorry uh, uh i think it's even i even i, I if you want to speak to more traditional stuff and killer's yeah. kiss i i think it is it's the uh, the theme from once I think is what it's called is what's used repeatedly in the romantic scenes yeah. and even that is deployed in a way that feels less like an encapsulation uh, of you know their growing affection towards each other and more as a uh, as a warning and yeah. kind of a, a mm-hmm. clarion call. Yeah, it's almost it's using it's using the soundscapes of genre to pass comment on what's happening in this mm-hmm. film in a very particular way. Yeah. Well, and again, I feel like in the coming weeks we're going to have a lot more to expand out when Kubrick's Sonic Palette is, expands, but regardless, even in this, I mean, especially in Killer's Kiss with some of those dissonant jazz tones, you really get a feel for how he would use music in especially The Shining pops to mind right away, where you have these big band sounds employed in the service of evoking this very particular kind of dread and terror. And I think he does a really strong job of hitting on this with Freed's compositions in these early features. Oh, I can't wait to talk to you about 2001 and the notion of like cacophonous sound, like oh, creating absolutely. a vibe. As because to God, if you if you will get there in a yeah. couple weeks time. But if you watch that in a movie theater and honestly having so speaking of the music box where Blake and I both saw 2001 in the past week or so, I got to see the killing there some years ago. It was the first time I actually saw the film. And even in that, the music hits hard. Yeah. That's so cool. Oh, absolutely. It it was a really great way to see that. And if you can see any of the films we're talking about, those of you listening at home, if you can see these on a screen at any point, especially in the case of fear and desire, that's probably going to be difficult. But I highly recommend it because it really draws out just some some of the stark compositional things he's doing with sound in these films as well, even very, very early on. You you, you know you're quietly making me feel bad about buying a used copy of The Killing on DVD from a, a defunct Hollywood video I'm watching it in my dorm room. I just you, want you to know that. You, you should me feel, feel like bad. a classless piece of shit right now. It's on the Criterion Collection now, so you're That's, actual oh, trash. I know, right? Yeah, I, I 
Fireball is so bad. Well, we're drawing closer to the end here, but before I bring us home, we're going to conclude each of these episodes because there's so much to say about Kubrick and it's hard to kind of sum it all down. So if we can get at, for just a few minutes here, the Kubrickian ethic of these films, and especially if we're going to take the trilogy from Fear and Desire Through the Killing, the thrilogy, if you will, <laughs> I deserve I deserve sorry. to be tarred and feathered. I am sorry. <laughs> I'm leaving. I know, no, so, Mike, stay. That was really good, I think. So before you both leave the booth and leave me to feel shame... <laughs> I so in all seriousness though as it relates to these we're talking about these kind of as the formation of his worldview as sort of the basis for a lot of the more ambitious work that would follow yeah so on that basis how do we read these as formative of the Kubrickian ethic and what about his worldview emerged just from these alone so we've been doing this uh, this podcast now for like the last two hours cumulative. And like I've thought of a million different things about Kubrick in a million different ways over the years. And in discussing these early works, I, I'm kind of like, I'm leaning back and now I'm thinking like, he was kind of a lucky wise-ass if you kind of put it... Like, you can talk about Kubrick the SD, you can talk about Kubrick the human fetishist, you can talk about him as the scientist... I'm also kind of thinking, like, from a thematic and just pure interest standpoint, like, he's a smartass. He's a wiseacre. He's someone who's kind of like, yeah, yeah, all all the, the good plans and processes that we put into place for ourselves are always going to unravel. All the good intentions that we have, yeah, people kind of are given to their basic instincts. Uh, if you really think you're kind of on both of your feet, you're about to lose one really quickly. And I don't I don't mean to oversimplify it to, like, things happen, people behave bad or just get unlucky, but it's also, like, I do think that in kind of revisiting and reevaluating these films, like, some people call him a sadist or a clinical, like, therapist of human nature. I also think he's just kind of, like, silly. He kind of thinks that people, you know, act out of just the, the dumbest instincts and maybe... Maybe that's what leads us to Dr. Strangelove and people thinking with, like, straight-up ego. Or Barry Lyndon and people acting acting out of, like, pure self-interest. Or Full Metal Jacket out of, like, a shallow sense of pride. Whatever you want to call it. Eyes wide shut. Just to, to, to screw. Um, and in these early films, it's like, wow, there really is, like... And I don't think it's a cynical viewpoint, but it's so, so much as, like, a, a very pragmatic... Maybe people are cynical. Maybe people are selfish. Maybe people just kind of act out of weird self-interest. Like, fear and desire, you can, you know, serve in the honor of your country or to serve for a greater purpose with armed forces. But, like, you're going to be presented with situations where you're just going to be ugly. Um, Killer's kiss and the killing, you can have the best laid plans. But the fact is, like... You're doing this ultimately you're for yourself. You're doing it for veneer. You're doing it for ego. You're doing it for pride, and that's what's kind of interesting to me. And in, like about cubic in hindsight, like I don't know. I never really thought about it this way. Like maybe I'm just considering like throwing in the word lucky because he had self funded. Like oh, people are silly creatures. Like maybe he was a bit of an alien, kind of looking at like the 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 juvenile behavior of man and all these like very quote finger important situations. 
But that's what's kind of so cool about looking back at this stuff. Like, you see a guy who's, like, endlessly fascinated as well. as so I can't help but, like, look back and snicker. It's like someone who once told me that if you look at the Beatles catalog, um, it's, it's not about piggies on the White Album being, like, a weird experiment. It's about John Lennon sitting in a corner probably laughing his ass off, knowing that he got away with making the song Piggies or something like that. Or Octopus's Garden, like... Uh, but the thing is... Kubrick was able to formalize and synthesize it into such like dynamic fashion that he now I'm thinking about this like made a pretty good career out of like the craziness of people anyway that that's just my my very like drunken film school <laughs> ramble and reevaluation of like oh he really was on it with these people and how they behave oh jeez that was that was great okay um, <laughs> yeah I, I think that I think I've come to uh, at some point different angle at a similar thesis Blake is talking about in the sense that, you know, I think I was coming in uh, some pre- with some preconceived notions, um, even having seen most of Kubrick's work and, you know, finding it to be extremely varied. Um, I was coming in some with some preconceived notions about, you know, the dictator conversations or whatever, you know, derogatory... Uh, Control. <laughs> you came in in the wrong week to get into those. No, I know. We'll get there, I assure you. But what, what I what I want to say is, if anything, watching these three films has been a counter to that, mm-hmm. and um, has kind of pointed out to me that, well, not necessarily did you know, did he come into this with luck? Though, you know, it is somewhat uh, humanizing to hear about all of his budget <laughs> difficulties. Um, there is something to be said about him as a director who, with a, a increasing scope, was able to, to, to find himself and maybe mm-hmm. rein in some of his weirder... Uh, weirder tendencies. In the sense that as he became more of an auteur, see, and this is weird because I'm going to go back to later films and be like, you're a fucking idiot for saying what you said. That some of the later auteur touches were, I, I guess what I'm saying is that the, what watching these three films was a, a good reminder that Kubrick can't be placed into the box that we like to place him in in history and in the present time um and seeing these you know just reminded me how vital uh, he can feel from moment to moment which is something i think i forget when you try to contain the spectacle of so many later films I think as far as answering unanswerable questions went, you two both just gave your best college try at it, and I thank you. We're Blake both really on the middle, though. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's <laughs> like, uh, I'm talking right now, I guess. No, well, no. Regardless, I do just want to say thank you both for joining me this week to try and tackle some pretty heady material. Thank you to Cat Blackard and Michael Rothman for all of their support in helping to put Consequence Podcast Network together and continue to give us a venue to do goofy shit like this. 
Um, We'll see you next week for the second episode of Filmography Stanley Kubrick, where we'll be talking about the wartime films as seen through Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Dr. Strangelove, and Full Metal Jacket. So we will have a full evening's entertainment for you next week. Can I just throw this out there? I think Full Metal Jacket is total horseshit, but that's a whole other discussion. Well, that's why you're not going to be on next week's episode. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Well, if that's your attitude. Anyway... Anyway, you can find me, obviously, here on Filmography. I will be here the next three weeks talking about Stanley Kubrick with various other talented film critics who are not these two, though they are both exceedingly talented. (laughs) You didn't even let me finish the segue, and now aren't you looking silly. So, since you're going to cut me off, Michael Snydell, where can the good people find you elsewhere? The good people can find me elsewhere uh, on Twitter at at Snydell. I'm also on the film stage, which uh, we had two recent episodes go up on Monday. One of First Reformed, which is really fucking good. And uh, one for The Tale, which is also good, but might depress you. Uh, and we'll have more episodes, including an episode for the, for Revenge coming out this week. So go listen. Uh, and you can find me, uh, Mr. Blake Gobble, uh, Consequence of Sound, BlakeGobble.com, Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, just kind of writing on, writing on. Uh, Dominic and, and I are currently in negotiations over which happy uh, Madison movie I may or may not <laughs> review in the coming future. It's quite a good negotiation, let me tell you folks. But it's not Whoever quite a, wins, we all lose. <laughs> it's not a Kubrick, but damn it, it's a movie, whether you like it or not. Of all the movies, it is certainly one of them. <laughs> Anyway, thank you for listening again. We are not the only Consequence Podcast Network show by a long shot. You can listen to Lior Phillips on This Must Be the Gig. She'll be talking to Titus Andronicus's Patrick Stickles this week. You can listen to The Losers Club, Consequence of Sound's resident Stephen King podcast. You can listen to TV Party, our weekly and sometimes bi-weekly rundown of all that's happening in the wild, ever-growing world of television right now. Oh, this is a good time to mention Allison Shoemaker joined us for a film stage podcast. Yes. TV Party co-host Allison Shoemaker and Clint Worthington will actually be joining me on this show next week. And you can find the podcast again on Facebook at Filmography of Filmmakers Podcast. You can find the site at large on Twitter at Consequence. You can find me on Twitter personally at D. Suzanne Mayer, along with all of my film work at Consequence of Sound. He's related Again, to John Mayer. <laughs> I am not related to John Mayer. The worst part is I have a cousin named John, and I'm sure the no, past 15 years have been oh really my. hard for him. That's the Michael Bolton joke from Office Space. It it's really terrible. is. It's that, but in real life. He's a firefighter. I am not. Again, please leave us a review on iTunes and Podchaser or wherever else you solicit fine podcasts. You have no idea how much it helps us. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. Thank you again to Michael and Blake for joining me, and we will see you all next week.